0: And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. The same day, Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection and they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must bury the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong." "...because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given to marriage, but are like angels in heaven. As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together." And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. Let's pray for our time in God's Word this morning. Father, this Lord's Day, our prayer is that of the psalmist. May the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in Your sight, O Lord. You are truly our rock. You are truly our Redeemer. We thank You for that. And we pray now for our time in your word this Lord's day. Amen. As I mentioned before, we've come to a point now, kind of a, a climax in Matthew's gospel. Uh, if, if this was a movie about the, the relationship between Jesus and the religious leaders, if this was a, a play, it probably would have started. Act 1 would have been around... Matthew chapter 3, that's when you first see the the religious leaders coming there at the baptism that John is offering. John is calling people to repentance. And so people come out to be baptized. And if you remember Matthew 3, John looks at the Pharisees and Sadducees and he says to them, Who warned you to flee the wrath to come? He refers to them as a brood of vipers. He says, Go bear fruit, keeping with your repentance. And that's a central theme you see in Matthew First from John, then from Jesus, the accusation that the religious leaders of his day were not bearing fruit in keeping with their repentance. In other words, these were people, much like many in our churches today, who said, Oh, yes, I'm a follower, I am repentant, and yet there was no fruit in their life of that repentance. Jesus noted this. He often called them out. On it. And so we see from Matthew chapter 3, if that's Act 1, Act 2 would probably be around Matthew chapter 9. That's where the Pharisees start to ask some questions of Jesus. Not that they want to get a, an answer or learn something, but asking questions in the sense of wanting to trick him, wanting to test him. Uh, specifically, the question they ask in Matthew chapter 9, they don't even ask to Jesus, they ask to his disciples. That tells you a little bit about their character. Uh, they're probably a little hesitant about confronting Jesus. So they go to the disciples. They say, well, how come? Why is it that, that, that your teacher, the so-called Messiah, why does he spend so much time with sinners and tax collectors? And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, rebukes them. And so then in Matthew chapter 9, uh, we see the them get to the point where they want to start destroying, ultimately, Jesus, is what it says in Matthew 12. And the way they're going to do that is they want to discredit him. Uh, Matthew 9, for example, he does miraculous things, so what do they say? They don't debate the miraculous things. They say it's not by the power of God, it's by the power of the enemy. He is possessed by the devil. Well, that doesn't work. People continue to follow Jesus. And so from there, you see them starting to plot. They want to destroy Christ. The text doesn't tell us what all that plotting involved, but chances are the decision they came to, what, what they started to think about was we, we've got to put Jesus in a situation where he's essentially going to put his foot in his mouth. Uh, we've got to put Jesus in a situation. We've got to test him. We've got to accuse him. We've got to question him until he, he basically ties the rope himself. Maybe you've been in that situation before personally or seen someone else. If, if you or them, if, they just, if you talk enough, you're going to do enough damage to yourself. Uh, that's why the Scripture says it's better that a fool remain quiet. <laughs> you know, that shows wisdom. And So they're going to try to test Jesus. They're going to try to trick Jesus. Over and over we see that through Matthew's Gospel. And so then we get to chapter 21. We see this last week in the earthly ministry of Jesus. And in here again, Jesus is calling the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, the religious rulers. He's calling them what they are. He basically says they're like a fig tree. A fig tree that has the appearance of fruit, but upon closer inspection, there's no fruit on it. He says that's what they're like. On the outside, things look a certain way. Upon further inspection, you find there's no repentance, there's no fruit or repentance in their life. Well, you can imagine. They don't like this accusation very much, but Jesus goes on. They question his authority. He responds with a series of parables. Parables basically saying, Pharisees, Sadducees, this is what you're like. You're like the son who says, oh yes, father, but then you don't really obey. Uh, you're like the tenant, the worker of a field who, when the master sends his servants, you kill him, and then ultimately you kill the master's son. That, that, that's how direct his accusations are getting towards them. Obviously, we on this end of the Scriptures know he's speaking about himself. They're going to ultimately kill the son of God, their true king. So, so this is where we're at. And so, in their efforts to test him, they failed. And so what we read this morning, this text we're looking at right now, it's essentially one last effort on behalf of the religious leaders to somehow entangle Jesus in His words, to just kind of get that sound bite. You know th- think about our our political culture today. You know coming into November, this election, you better believe that, that everything, those involved running in the election, whether it's for president or for senate or local government, whatever it is, you better believe those who are running the opposite side, they're going to dig through anything they ever said in hopes of getting that one sound bite, that one little nugget, where they seem to be a hypocrite, where they seem to contradict themselves. Well, this is similar to what's taking place here. They, they want to find that one little thing that Jesus might have said, that he might say, that then can discredit him. And so as they do that, it's amazing to see how it is Jesus responds to them. And, And I want to look at this text from that perspective today. There's much here we could talk about. I want to kind of step back from it and look not only at how is it that Jesus responds to the skeptics of his day, but then how are we called to respond to the skeptics of our day? See, I'm in the ministry, I've had many conversations with people who don't believe. I've witnessed many believers have conversations with those who don't believe. And sadly, we don't often handle those conversations so well. I think there's a lot we can learn about how we are to handle them. Sometimes we, we argue little points and we miss the big picture. And so let's look at that big picture and look at how Jesus responded because just as he responds to his skeptics, we should respond to ours. And the first thing we'll look at, the first point to take from this text is this, that in our response, in Jesus' response, the authority of God must be presented. The authority of God must be presented. Let's look at this first encounter. The Pharisees, again, we know who these guys are. The Pharisees are the, the they're religious They're intensely religious. You you take everything in the law, they added to it. They were very religious people. They were looking for a Messiah. They just didn't believe Jesus was that Messiah. In fact, they believed that that Messiah would be one who politically would come and would overthrow the Roman rule. Now that's important to note because look at who's with them in this passage. The Herodians. Now you might not know a whole lot about the Herodians. You might not have. Went to bed last night thinking, I wonder what those Herodians are up to. You know. It's not hard, though, to figure out who they are. The Herodians are followers of Herod. Uh, Herod is the ruler instituted by the government, Roman rule at this time. Herod is the ruler. Now think about this. That the Jewish people are looking for a Messiah to overthrow the Roman rule. The Pharisees are looking for a Messiah to overthrow the Roman rule. And then you've got this other category of people, the Herodians, who they like Herod. They've uh, become allies with Herod. They've sworn allegiance to Herod. They're, they're kind of like the Sadducees in that they weren't overtly religious. They were more politically active. And so and they were ones who basically would say, you know, Herod is here, uh, God's placed him here, we're going to follow him, not so much out of a submission from authority, but really to get in good with with Herod and hope that they would receive favor as a result. One group of people wants to see Herod thrown out. Another group supports him. Why are they linking arms? Well, they're linking arms because they have a common enemy. Uh, They don't believe either of them that Jesus is the Messiah, so they conspire together, so it's no surprise then that the question they're going to test Jesus with is one about taxes. You see, they asked Jesus, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And they think they've got him here. Because if he says yes, there's a whole bunch of people who aren't going to like that. Uh, much like many of us, people of Jesus' day, didn't like paying taxes either, but it was more than that. It wasn't just that you, know, you may be upset because of your, your tax bracket, your tax rate. That, that wasn't so much what they were upset about. They were, they, they were paid taxes all their life. In fact, they, they paid the temple tax. Tax was a part of what they did, but, but it was this tax to Herod. This tax to this Roman Empire that disgusted them, that they had a disdain for. And so if Jesus were to say, well, yeah, you should pay that tax, that wouldn't have sat well with them. And so these religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Herodians thought, well, if he says yes, then... Well, there we have it. His people will stop following him because they won't like what he says. If he says no, they've got him there too. Sure, the crowd will be excited, but the Roman authority is probably not going to get real excited about that. You know, I come in here this Lord's Day and I say to you, Bloomfield Baptist Church, uh, hey, got a word from the Lord for you? Uh, nobody here has to pay taxes anymore. Amen. Yeah, come on, bring it. Preach that sermon. I just preach that every Sunday, 52 Sundays a year. You know, people packed out. We'd like that message. Not everybody would like that message. If you're with us this morning from the Internal Revenue Service, you might not like that message. If you're with us this morning as an employee of the state or local government, you might not like that message either. Well, they knew in Jesus' day if he were to say, no, this isn't lawful, no, don't do this, that they would be done because the Roman authorities would come in, they would say, this is a rebellion, this is the leader of the rebellion, and they would take him away at that point. But notice, Jesus doesn't answer their question, at least in either of those two ways. What does Jesus say? He says, give me a coin. And so they give him a coin and he holds that coin up and he basically looks at it and he says, listen, wh- whose likeness and in inscription is on this coin? Well, they tell him whose likeness and in inscription. It's a denarius. A denarius is a, a common uh, Roman uh, currency. It, it amounted to about a day's wage and it had Caesar on it. it had the inscription of Caesar on it. And so it's not really hard. It's not a hard test who's on it. It's Caesar. And so what does Jesus say? He says, well, therefore... Give to Caesar what is Caesar, give to God what is God's. Well, they don't really know what to say. It says they marveled. Here's the question, though. Think about this for a second, Christian. What is God's? He says, give to Caesar what's Caesar, give to God what is God's. What is God's? What does God own? What has God created what belongs to Him? If you don't know the answer, go to Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, you find that in the beginning, the, the earth, the world as we know it, creation, it was void, it was darkness, it wasn't there. The Scripture says that God created everything. And specifically, it says this, Genesis 1 verse 26, that God created man to represent his image. The triune God says, Let us make man in our image, and specifically, listen to this, our likeness. Now think about that first example for a second. Genesis chapter 1, creation. Creator God creates man. In the likeness of God, it doesn't mean we, we look like God. It means we are image bearers, the scripture tells us. We, we are reflections of the glory of the Most High. We are in his likeness. Fast forward to Matthew chapter 22 and Jesus is holding up a coin and he says, okay, you want to know if you should pay taxes, whose likeness is on this coin? If I hold up a picture of myself this morning and I say, who's this a picture of? You're going to say, it's a picture of you. Probably very few of you would say, well, that's an image bearer of God. You know? And yet, that's exactly who I and who you are. The Scripture says we are created in the likeness of God. What's the point? The point is this. Jesus, in indirectly answering their question, is pointing them towards something much greater. They're asking a question about the authority of Caesar. He responds to them with the authority of God. Whose coin is this indirectly? Well, this is Caesar's coin. Who is Caesar's? Who does he belong to? He belongs to who we all belong to. We belong to our Creator God. And friends, our initial response, our first response to people who are skeptics, who don't believe, we we need to start there. We need to start helping them understand that God has absolute authority and God is creator. See, we, we have taught now going on generations of people that they're not created by God. They're not created in the image of God. And so then when we in the church say, you're created in the image of God, they say, well, no, we're not. We're created by cosmic accident. We're created by particles running into each other. We need to help them understand no, no, the Christian worldview, the scripture says you are created by God, and that's significant. Here's why. See, often where we start in talking to people about the gospel is we start with redemption. We start with, well, you need to be saved. You need to have Christ in your life. You need to be born again. Problem is, the audience we're talking to may respond, saved from what? Born again. I've already been born once. See, more and more they don't, they don't see the argument for that, and so that's where we have to go back, back to creation, back to explaining. We were created as image bearers of God. Adam and Eve in the garden, given dominion in this garden, except God had full dominion, and God wanted them to understand that. So here's what He did. He placed a tree in that garden, a reminder that He has ultimate dominion. They have small dominion over this garden, over this area to cultivate it, to take care of it. Don't eat of that tree. God's reminding them they're not ultimate over everything. He is. And so what do they do? They, they do the exact same thing, mom and dad, what your kids do. You take your child into grandma's house. You walk them into grandma's antique breakable room. You say, you can play anywhere in this house. You can go wander for 100 acres. But this room is off limits because we don't want you to break grandma's stuff. Now let me ask you, where's the one place you are likely to find those children? Grandma's breakable room, probably with breakable stuff broken on the floor. Why is that? Because within our DNA, we are rebellious, we are sinners, we don't respond well to authority. That, that's not just a, a characteristic or a trait of us that goes back to our DNA. We are indeed sinners. We're fallen. And so Adam and Eve, they sin, they fall. There's creation, then there's a great rebellion. But even in the midst of that rebellion, God says there's going to be a redeemer. He's going to come. He's going to make all things new. One, thing, one day they'll be restored. We need to preach that message to people. We need to help them understand God is ultimate. God has authority. You and I, we can debate in our own authority all day long. You can tell me what you think is morally right or wrong. I can tell you what I think is morally right or wrong. Sadly, that's much of what the church does and yet the church of Christ calls us to follow Christ. What does he do? He points towards the ultimate. That God is ultimate. He is the authority. So we have to start there. That's not the only argument that we see Jesus make here. We see he goes on after speaking of God's authority, pointing to God's authority to this point that we need to grasp today. And the point is this, that the gospel of Christ must be proclaimed. It's It's not enough just to talk about God's authority. We need to talk about the Gospel. Notice these next couple of encounters. The Pharisees, people have marveled. They leave Him and they go away. But there's some others on hand, the Sadducees. Sadducees, you know from the Scripture, they're they're different than the Pharisees. Again, many differences. They lock arms against a common enemy, that's Jesus. The Sadducees weren't nearly as religious as the Pharisees. In fact, the Pharisees would take the Old Testament law and they would add to it. They'd add all kinds of things to it. Uh, they, they, they added rules, hundreds of them. The Sadducees didn't do that at all. In fact, the Sadducees just believed the five, first, five books of the Old Testament were what they needed to adhere to. We refer to those as the Pentateuch. And so looking at the Pentateuch, the Sadducees would say, well, you know what? You read the first five books of the Old Testament, there's nothing about a resurrection there. And so they believed, among other things, there was no resurrection. They believed there were no miracles. They believed everything had a material explanation. They believed that when you die, you are dead and there is nothing left. There are people among us, there are people in our world like that today. They're materialists. They don't believe anything else is out there. That's who the Sadducees were. So they're kind of a quasi-religious group, maybe more so a political group of their day. And so they come to ask Jesus a question. Now, this question may seem a little obscure because this question is obscure. Uh, There was an Old Testament teaching that if a man and a woman lived among that man's family and he were to die probably prematurely, they hadn't had children yet, then someone else in the family could take her as a wife in order to expand that family, to carry on his family name. So that, that is an Old Testament teaching. If you're sitting here this morning... Ladies, your brother-in-law is here. You might not be excited about this. Might not be where you want to go. But that's where the scripture it gave that. Why? Because it was giving a provision for that man's lineage to carry on. And we see it in the scripture. It wasn't that it was perfectly obeyed, or it always had to happen that way. Think, for example, the story of Ruth. The story of Ruth, one of the, the most romantic pictures in the scripture, her kinsman redeemer, Boaz. He's her kinsman redeemer. Uh, when Boaz wants to marry Ruth, you may remember that story, he has to go to someone else who's closer, closer in the family lineage to Ruth's husband who's passed away. He has to ask that man permission. Hey, it's your right to marry her, but I want to marry her. That's why that's there. Well, that's in the Old Testament, but notice what the Sadducees do here. They make it rather obscure. They, they exaggerate greatly this point. They basically could have stopped with, well, if she marries the second time and then dies and there's no children and they go to heaven, which one's her husband? But no, they say not the second, third, fourth, fifth. They get seven husbands out of this. They're they're just basically trying to ridicule Jesus. And they, you may have had this in an argument before. You know, you are trying to argue a point, husbands, wives. This, you know, probably never happens in your house, may have happened in mine, you know, all of a sudden things go to the edge of ridiculous. You know, you start off on this one thing and you end up way over here. You know, it started off with I thought you were going to clean the dishes. You didn't clean the dishes. And somehow that one hour later is well, yeah, well, at our wedding, your mother it just goes all over the place. And that's what we essentially see the Sadducees attempting here. They're attempting just to make a ridiculous argument to Jesus because they don't believe in the resurrection and they're trying to illustrate how ridiculous the notion of a resurrection is. How ridiculous the notion that somehow this man, this man, this man, this man, this man etc. are going to be in heaven and is this going to be the wife of all seven of these men and how does that work? Well, Jesus addresses their question very directly first of all by telling them they don't understand what the scriptures teach that's not the point of that old testament teaching in fact jesus steps back and says you don't understand marriage to begin with see christian when we read the whole of scripture we learn that marriage is a picture of something else marriage is an illustration of something else We experienced an illustration today. Josh was baptized. Baptism, we don't believe, saves us. Why? Baptism is an illustration of what's already happened. Romans chapter 6. It illustrates Christ's death, our union with that, Christ's burial, our union with that. Christ's resurrection, our union with that. It's illustrative. The Scripture says marriage is illustrative of what? It's illustrative of Jesus Christ, the King, and His bride, the church. Marriage illustrates that. When we get to heaven and we are the bride and we are with Jesus, there's no illustration needed. It's there. And so Jesus is saying, you don't understand the Scriptures and not only what marriage is, they don't understand what the Pentateuch taught. They think that there's nothing in the first five books of the Old Testament about the resurrection. And that's exactly why Jesus then takes them to Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, and His response to them. Here in Exodus 3, God is speaking to Moses. Notice how it is that God responds to Moses. He says, I am... The God of Abraham. Now what's the problem with that? Abraham's dead by that point. I am the God of Isaac. Dead. I am the God of Jacob. Dead. Sadducees believe once you're dead, you're dead. There's nothing else. What does Jesus say? God's not the God of the dead. And these books, of the Old Testament that you adhere to, you must not have read them very much, because look at what they say. I am the God of, He is the God of. Why? Because present tense, they are alive. How? Through the resurrection. Jesus is pointing to the resurrection. We in our discussions and our arguments and our conflicts need to point towards the resurrection. Without the resurrection, there is no gospel and we need to proclaim that gospel. Jesus goes on. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, they're, they're frustrated, they're astonished, so they, they group together again. They grab a lawyer. He's going to fix it. Reading that what you might. Lawyer comes. He's the one who comes and going to test Jesus. The lawyer's got it all figured out. He's got the question that's going to test Jesus. Remember again who he's representing. The Pharisees, hundreds of laws they've added to the Scriptures. The Sadducees, not so much. And so, just getting these guys to agree on something, the lawyer's basically going to try to trap Jesus in, okay, pick out of all of those, which one's the greatest? Which's the greatest law? And they think that they'll trick Jesus. But they don't. Jesus says to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great first commandment. And the second is like it, you should love your neighbor as yourself. He astounds them to the point that the Gospel of Mark tells us that the lawyer who asked the question says, Huh, You're right. (laughs) You don't have anything else to say. That's exactly it. You can read through the whole Old Testament. That's what it comes down to. Love God, the Shema, Deuteronomy 6. Love God with everything and love your neighbor. But here's the question. How do we do that? Are we born with everything we need just to love God ultimately? Love our neighbor ultimately? Had a conversation not long ago with someone who did not believe the Scriptures. They did not believe the God of Scriptures. Their worldview was this. They said, well, I just believe we just need to all love each other and the world would be a better place. You know what I say to that? Amen! Amen! Let's all love each other. The question is, Why don't we? Why do you struggle to forgive someone? Why isn't your natural inclination when someone wrongs you repeatedly, offensively, deeply to walk up to them with a smile on your face, an authentic smile on your face, hug them and say, you can do nothing wrong. I love you. Why is that? Well, I believe from a biblical worldview, it's because we don't have the capacity to love that way unless we first are loved that way. In our relationships with one another, our love, it falls short. You you can be committed in your love to your spouse and you can still betray that love you can be committed in your love to your children and still find yourself being very angry with your children and yet we find in the scripture a picture of love that's quite different. It's the love of God our Father. The scripture says first John chapter 4, it's not that we loved him, he loved us first. Through His Son, Jesus, who He offered up, the text says, as a propitiation, a substitute for our sin. God loved us so much, Christ died for us. His love for us then compels us to do what? To go love others. And so when Jesus says the great commandment is, love God, love others, the question is, well, how do we do that? Well, the way we do that is by responding not just first to the great commandment, we first have to respond to the great commission that tells us to go, therefore, to the world, make disciples. We have to become a disciple. We need to become a Christian. We need to respond to the gospel. Then we can love. The problem with so many in the church today is we're trying to go out and propagate the great commandment and tell everybody to love each other, but we're not telling them where that love can come from, and that falls short. And that's why when we look at things like modern missions, I have good friends who are on the front lines in West Africa. They are among a people who literally, as I preach, are dying, dying, dying. They can set up every medical clinic in the world. They can give malaria shots to thousands, and people are still going to die, and without Christ, spend a Christless eternity. And that's why missions doesn't start with, let me help you in that way. Or if it does start there, it doesn't end with it. Missions involved us proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. The gospel is what changes lives. Whether you die from malaria or you die from old age at 110 years old, you're going to die. The question is, are we ready for what comes next? Because unlike the Sadducees, I do not believe that everything ends there. I believe the Scripture teaches that there is certainly more. And that more comes with an eternity where we will either be with God or separated from God and under His wrath. And the only way to be with Him is to respond to the Gospel. And we have to continue to preach that. Lastly, the call to repentance and faith must be preached. It goes hand in hand with the Gospel. Jesus, and one last question answer here, he's the one asking the question. Verse 41, the Pharisees gather together. They don't really have anything else to ask. But Jesus says, who do you think, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? He's not saying biologically, who is my father? They don't believe he's the Christ to begin with. They're saying, okay, you believe in a Messiah who will come, whose son is he? Well, son of David. Scripture teaches that. Messiah is going to come from the family of David. They believe that about David. Here's the thing about the Messiah. They believe the Messiah would be a man... They did not believe the Messiah would be God. They believed the Messiah would be a man who would overthrow Roman rule, who would lead them nationally. God would use him to restore Israel. And yet Jesus is saying, no, the Messiah is more than that. David understood that. That's why they say, well, how then in the Spirit does David call Him Lord? He wouldn't refer to some man as His Lord. He quotes Psalm 110. Side note, it's the most quoted chapter in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because Psalm 110 is messianic. It talks about the Christ who is to come. And Jesus points right to that. And he says, David says, the Lord said to my Lord. Who is David's Lord? Yahweh, the Father, God. The Lord says to my Lord, who is my Lord? My Lord is the Messiah. He's the Redeemer. David says, the Lord says to my Lord. This isn't just a man. This is the Messiah. This is God, who the Scripture says the only one who can rightly sit at the right hand of God is God himself. And we see that picture God the Father, God the Son. The Son sits at the right hand of the Father. Psalm 110 shows us that. It's a messianic psalm. Jesus points to that and says, if David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? What is Jesus saying? Jesus is basically confronting them on who do you really believe the Messiah to be? Jesus is ultimately asking them a question. Who do you believe Jesus is? Who do you believe He is? He is saying, who do you believe I am? He asked that question before, he'll ask it again. The question for us this Lord's Day, who do we believe Jesus is? And it's the question we ultimately need to point people towards, and as we do, we need to call them to repentance and faith. And, and that's where we'll close this study of this Lord's Day with that thought and with this question. For those of us who affirm that God is authoritative and He's the Creator. For those of us who affirm and believe that the Gospel is true, that Jesus is His Son, that He was offered up on the cross for our sins. Have we truly repented and placed our faith in Christ? If not, we're not that different than the Pharisees standing there on the banks of the river and John saying to them, You say these things but there's no fruit of your repentance. The question for you, for I this morning is, is there fruit of repentance in our life? The question is not, are you being a good Christian? The question is not, how, how good have you been? The question is, do you rest in the authority of God and His Word? Have you repented of your sins and placed your faith in Him? That's the question for us, and that's where we need to respond in faith. Romans chapter 10, yes, Christ, you are Lord. Yes, I do believe. Let's go to God in prayer. If you'll stand with me. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the truth in it. Father, I pray for those gathered this Lord's Day here at Bloomfield Baptist Church. If there's any who perhaps they believe in some of these things, but they've yet to respond in repentance and faith. Father, I pray that Your Holy Spirit would work in their hearts. Perhaps they have questions we haven't dealt with today. Perhaps they've got a whole lot of questions. Father, I pray that through Your Spirit, through Your Word, that You would respond to those questions, that You would engage them with believers who would point them towards Your Word, which ultimately has the answers. But Lord, also that we would understand there are things we may wonder, things we may not know, may not be answered particularly. Lord, the greatest question is, are we like the Sadducees? We believe there's no afterlife? Or is there something there? And if so, what is it? And, and and how are we to respond? And the Gospel says, there most certainly is. You most certainly are king. We are to respond in repentance and faith. And I, I pray that they would. Pray, Father, who, uh, for any who has, who you might be calling to come and join our church this Lord's Day. Uh, Father, that you would give them the boldness to, to follow through in faith to what you put on their heart for others who... Lord, perhaps just need to pray in response. We pray they would, and we pray for these things in Christ's name. Amen.